Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have Rosemary Ringer. She has a book called Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. Thanks for being on. Oh, you're very welcome. A minor correction. I do have a book, but it hasn't actually been published yet. It's, it's still a, a work in progress. Oh, okay. She didn't say that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, I know like some of your stories kind of tra- is, is definitely tragic and heavy to talk about. Um, but uh, it, it looks like, like your journey really kind of, like from the information that I have, started um, when your husband committed suicide. Yes, um, I, I would say that's accurate. Okay. Um, so, so that had to have been really traumatizing. I know I've experienced some suicides myself. And, you know, I, I guess I, the, I always, always, the problem I had was kind of trying to, f- um, the reasoning behind it, you know. Um, well, that's suicide is messy. Uh, there's no two ways around that. And suicide, you know, I can hardly watch a television show or a movie these days without finding somebody in the storyline commit suicide, which is just excruciatingly painful. They really ought to say, you know, warning, graphic depiction of suicide uh, enclosed. And I am in a wonderful Facebook group of women whose husbands had killed themselves. And it's called the Sisterhood of, of uh, Suicide Survivors. And it's just, it has been a, a lifesaver for me because our experiences are all so amazingly closely related. And one of the, you know, of course, my husband um, he was somebody for whom I had um, sought and hoped and prayed for literally decades. I married him in my early 40s, and I was just so grateful all the time that I had finally met this wonderful man and so thoroughly enjoyed just listening to him talk, and he made me laugh, and I made him laugh. So beyond the typical, um, I can't even say typical, but beyond the tragedy of losing your husband in such a traumatic way, and also the the typical widowhood stuff, the problem or, or one of the issues with this is you lose everybody. People don't want to be around you. You scare them. And and I've heard this from other trauma survivors, like people who've lost a child. Uh, other parents will say to the, the parent, oh, what exactly happened? You should have taken him to the doctor. You shouldn't have taken him to the doctor. All this second guessing goes on and on and on. And in my case, it was, did you know he was sad? Did you know this was going to happen? Were there signs? Did he leave a note? And what they're really saying is, please tell me something so that I can know that this horrible thing will never happen to me. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to find out a way to insulate themselves from having this kind of horror drop into their life. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me, well, you know, I really lean on God and turn to God every day. And my life has been pretty smooth. And I'm pretty sure it's all those prayers. You know, that's a knife in my heart because I prayed for my husband every day. I prayed for my husband before I met him. I prayed for my husband before I ever knew there'd be a husband. So people like to come up with these 
you know, they say the, the human mind loves to find a design in things. People love to find a design in hoping that this will never happen to them. So yes, to call, it, it, it was tragic. And then my husband was a litigator. I was a writer. I'd written nine books. And after this, you know, I, we went, I went from being part of a power couple to being a social pariah. People didn't want to talk to me. People didn't want to be near me. And I was out of my mind. I lost my mind. My husband sent me a text right before he did this that said, this is your fault. And boy, did you know, I'm a sensitive soul. I'm, I'm empathic. I'm tenderhearted. This is your fault? Oh, my goodness. This, as I said, I prayed for him before I met him, and I prayed for him even more diligently after I, I found him. So that was, uh, that was brutal, and I uh, lost my mind. I became addicted to prescription drugs. I got pretty deep into alcohol. I suffered multiple injuries, multiple accidents. I lived out of my car briefly. I mean, I went about as far down as a person could go. And then after two and a half years, I had kind of hit some semblance of balance. And I mean, frankly, I was living in hell. But I figured, you know, I'll, I'll, you can adjust to anything. My life was, I would not say my life was happy, but my life, I was getting along. And I had moved into a house in a nice neighborhood. And uh, I'd take walks every day and played with a dog and went out to lunch with my buddies and, you know, did some writing work and, you know, all the things that people do. But every day in my journal, I struggled to find a reason to face one more day. In fact, it's kind of funny. I had three daily prayers I prayed every day. One was, God, please either heal me or let me die. Two, spare me the life review. And people think that's funny or they may smile, but I was quite serious. After my husband uh, my husband died by gunshot. He, he put a gun in his mouth, and he did this at home. So after my husband's death, I had recurring nightmares that I saw this happen again and again and again and again. And, and in the nightmares, I'd just kept be coming around the corner when I saw him do this, and I would beg him, no, no, no. So I had these recurring nightmares. And, and so that was one of my prayers. Please spare me a life review. I've been through this once. I don't want to see it again. I've been through it you know, in my nightmares repeatedly. And my third prayer was because, and this is very, very common, because of uh, a manner of poor decision, a number of poor decisions he had made, I was left with all manner of legal difficulties, and I had to face an inordinate a num number of um, legal problems, lawyers, decisions, uh, decisions, 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 and all with enormous consequences. So I beg God, please spare me these decisions. Help me, help me get past these very difficult decisions. So then comes September 2018, and I'm diagnosed with stage two cervical cancer. And I thought, wow, you know, God, I was pretty clear. I said, let me die in my sleep. You know, <laughs> this is not what I wanted. And I was still really struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, my life was just not very happy. So I underwent a, a relatively minor surgical procedure uh, related to this cancer. And after the procedure, they told me to get up and get dressed and go on home, and I did. Well, as I was getting up to get dressed, you know, still in the hospital, I realized I was bleeding profusely. And boy, I, I mean a lot. I told the RN that was tending to me three times that I was losing a tremendous amount of blood. And she was dismissive, and she said, oh, once you get home, you'll feel a lot better. <laughs> well, once I got home, I realized I was bleeding to death. I summoned an ambulance, was taken to another ER, and this was, a, this was actually in Virginia. I, I'm from the southeastern part of Virginia. 
And in this itty-bitty ER, they were not connected to a hospital. It was kind of like a glorified um, medical like urgent, urgent care, care kind of place. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the doctor that examined me was awful young, and I could tell she was a bit frightened, but they gave me some uh, Delauded. Actually, first they talked with me a bit, and this wonderful RN was in there with the doctor. She was about my age, and I'm laying on the gurney, and you know, it's I'm bleeding an awful lot. And I grabbed this RN's hand, and I pled with her. I said, "Please promise me you're not going to let me die." And she said, "Oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. We're not going to let you die." And I was so comforted by that because I could see in her eyes she wasn't afraid. She really cared about me. So after that, they gave me the Dilaudid, which is a, a morphine derivative and very powerful drug. And my, I had a buddy with me there. His name is Milton. Milton was there with me. And after that, I lost consciousness pretty quick. And they had hooked me up to a blood pressure cuff, one of those automated things that yeah. inflates. And, and they also had a pulse ox on my finger. Well, Milton said that they walked out of the room after that, which that was a boo-boo. But he said not long after they left, uh, he saw my blood pressure w had, had kept dropping, went to 32 over 25, which is pretty close to dead. And he said at that point, my eyes popped open. I tried to sit up on the gurney and I reached up to, uh, reached up to heaven. And he said, you talked to somebody that only you could see. And after saying just a few words, you plopped back down on that gurney and your blood pressure went to error, which meant it was lower than 32 over 25. And he said, and that's when um, it appeared you had died, uh, that, you know, there were no signs of life. And then in a bit, the nurse came in, and it's kind of funny now, but she, uh, she fiddled with the cuff on the blood pressure machine, <laughs> and then she fiddled with a plug in the wall. <laughs> she thought the blood pressure machine had failed when, in fact, uh -huh. it was the patient that had failed. But meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I literally, I was unconscious at the moment of my death, but I literally woke up when I died. And I woke up being catapulted out of my body. Very, very dramatic. And I was just floating further and further away from my body. And my first thought was, I'm dying. And then I thought, no, no, you know, being a writer, been a writer editor for 30 years, I thought, no actually, you're not dying, you're dead. And it cracked me up. And I heard myself laugh out loud. I heard myself giggle. And I thought, wow, I don't have breath sounds. I don't think I have vocal cords. And yet I still have the same giggle. I sound like I've always sounded. I'm thinking like I've always thought. And I have the same goofy sense of humor I've always had. So that, I can't tell you what a relief that was. You know, we always wonder, what's it really like on the other side? And to know that everything we are goes with us, right down to our voice and our funny little giggle and our intellect and our goofball sense of humor, to know all that had gone with me was immensely comforting. And I know the, it seems like part of the human condition is to be afraid of death, Right. And one of my thoughts was, you know, I was 59 years old at this point. I thought, wow, for 59 years, I've wondered what would take me out. And you know, it just happened. And it was no big deal. And I thought, I wish I'd known for 59 years that I didn't need to worry <laughs> about this. It was quite a thought. 
And I honestly almost sent like a quote from Forrest Gump. I remember thinking one less thing to worry about, you know, cause <laughs> I'd never worry about dying again. And it was, uh, it was an incredible experience and uh, still floating, floating further and further away. And I was in a blackness. I, I did not see my body. I was in this actively comforting, embracing, joyous blackness floating away. It was like the blackness was the essence of peace, and it was just enveloping me in this perfect peace. And I felt a spiritual being join me, a massive, big spiritual being. And he, she was to my left and much, much, much bigger than me and slightly behind me. And I remember I turned a bit to my left, which I thought was funny. I don't think I have uh, shoulders and a head, but I'm turning mm -hmm. my head over my left shoulder and really happy that this person, this being has joined me. I said, truly with a lilt in my voice, I said, and who are you? <laughs> and the answer was immediate. And it was more than just words. It was an infusion of uh, knowledge a spiritual infusion is the only way I can describe it. The answer was you, Rosemary. You are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I thought, wow, because that's Genesis 1.27. I thought, wow, my whole life I've wondered, really, what does that mean? That The Bible says we're made in the image and likeness of God. And I got it. It means there's an original, you know, and, and we, we're just the image and likeness. So I thought, I thought, can this possibly get any better, you know? <laughs> and one of the thoughts that came to me was, as a writer, as a person who's not had an easy life, especially after my husband's suicide, I've always been prone to extreme anxiety and fear and worry and panic. And I realized that I had perfect peace, literally perfect peace. And I thought to myself, I've always wondered what I would look like when there was no anxiety and no worries and no fear, and this is it, and I like it. I love this. And I, another very um, overwhelming, um, I should say maybe overarching feeling was great. Was I was so grateful. I was so grateful it was over. I, I remembered what I left behind. I was supposed to start chemotherapy and daily radiation within days, and I, I was done. You know, there, I wasn't going to have to do that. And one less thing to worry about. I wasn't going to have to face cancer treatments. I wasn't going to have to face the nonstop grief, the agonal grief that had been so awful. And I also thought of, I had thought about killing myself every day for 29 months. I mean, I had a very detailed plan as to how I would do it, when I would do it, where I would do it, the means, etc. And I never told a soul because I know once you start talking to people about it, you can end up in a psych ward. Yeah. And I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want anyone to know. I mean, if I was going to do it, I was going to do it. And that's one of the reasons I, I loathe, sorry, this may upset some of your listeners, but I loathe suicide prevention programs because one, it tells me with my own husband, there's something more could have, would have, should have done. You should have known. There's something I could have done. Nope. When somebody decides to do it, they shut up and they do it. And suicide prevention is another way of putting a knife in the heart of us suicide survivors and saying, oh, come on, there, you lived with him. You must have seen something. So as I'm floating away from my body in this new experience, I remember thinking very distinctly, I'm out. I'm free. 
I didn't do this to myself. This will be classified as a medical mistake. This will be classified as somebody not paying attention to a woman complaining of excessive, excessive bleeding, and now she's dead. And I thought, I did it. It's done. And honestly, it really and truly felt like I'd been granted early release for good behavior. No kidding. I was just so grateful it was over. And one of the thoughts I had, you know, this peace, this peace. I thought about Paul. I think it's, oh gosh, I think it's Philippians where he talks about the perfect peace that passeth all understanding. And I remember thinking this is what he was talking about. This is perfect peace. You can't imagine it until you experience it. And if you told me that this experience went on for 24 hours or 24 days, I would have believed you. In fact, I was dead for more than 10 minutes. No heartbeat, no blood pressure for more than 10 minutes. But it really felt like it went on and on and on and on. And time is, a, you know, I would say time is a different construct in heaven, but it's not, it's even more than that. It's not that time is a different construct. It's that there is no time. There isn't this linear chronology of past, present, future. There's just now. And this just went on and on, and I was loving it. And I remember, you know, so many people have said to me, oh, you wanted to come back. You weren't ready to go. Nope. I wanted to go. I was ready to go, and I was grateful to go. I had zero intention of coming back because not to put too fine a point on it, but dying uses a lot of energy, a lot of emotional effort. I had a lot of people ask me, were you afraid to die? And yeah, I was terrified. But, and I think that's biologically hardwired into us. The fact is, once you realize how it's going to end, you're like, all right, here we go. This is it. This is how I end. So yeah, by the time I realized that this was not going the way anybody expected, you resign yourself to it and just you just like, all right, um, this, it ends at 59 years. So yeah, I did not want to come back. I had no intention to, of coming back. Ultimately, um, and this is really compelling to me, I, I, I transitioned into a white room. I don't remember leaving that. I, I don't remember how I left leaving that floating through the blackness. Truthfully, it feels like somebody took my batteries out and I have no conscious memory. But my next experience, I was standing on my feet in a white room and I was walking and in this white room, I was being showered with this super ultra-fine white mist. And it was these, these bits like vapor, like a fog, but even more dense. And yet it wasn't cold or damp. It wasn't hot or unpleasant. It was perfect. And I, I tried to focus on these individual droplets that were falling around me. And I mean, I know that sounds nuts because how do you focus on a droplet of vapor, but an angel, and, and now this was a different spiritual being with me, said, your spiritual eyes have not adjusted to this new environment, but each of these tiny droplets swirling around you are particles of light. It's not water. It's, it's not vapor. It's light. You're being showered in divine light. And I was told whether we go on to heaven well, actually, I was told that when we go to heaven, everybody passes through this white room because some people die with a disease process or a mental illness or whatever so deeply imprinted on their thought, they think it's part of their identity, and it's not. And in this white room, 
all the stuff is washed away and we're made pure, we're made perfect so we can enter heaven. And as a, a dear friend told me, she said, leave your muddy boots at the door. And I thought that was a really good analogy. So I see a door ahead of me in this white room and I'm walking. I'm on, I, you know, I should have looked at my feet or my hands or something, but I'm walking forward and with intention because I don't know the mechanism by which I move now. But I'm walking forward and I see this door and I, I almost felt like, all right, everybody out of my way. I know what the door is about. That's the, the gate, the border, the boundary, the end, you know, coming back. I'm done. Let's go. As I approached the door, and it took some time to get to it, walking through this white, this beautiful white light. And by the way, this room, this was a massive room. The walls were white, ceiling floor, all white. It was as if it were illuminated from within. There were no light fixtures. The white was just, I don't know, the, light, the white was everywhere. So I approached the door, and I... I start to put my right hand up to push through the door. And I thought, you know, that door ought to be open. I don't like it that that door is shut. But as I reached for the door, pretty interested by the fact that I'm using my right hand to push through the door, you know, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. I think, wow, even my right-handedness went with me. But as I do that, I paused and I asked this being that was with me, is this the divine will for my life? And the answer was no. And I was like, oh, but the answer was, whatever you decide, whether you decide to go forward or whether you decide to go back, you go with all of God's blessings and mercy and grace and love and care. There is not a wrong decision. And that was an answer to one of my prayers, that I was so tired of making hard decisions and that was so comforting that God was saying, yeah, this, this might seem like a big one, whether you go back to your body or go on to heaven, but there is not going to be a wrong decision. And I, I said, okay, I'll take it. I'll take that deal. I want to go. I want to go so bad. And I remember I kept saying, I'm home. I'm coming home. I've been away for so long and I yearn to be back home again. I, I cannot articulate how deep and profound that feeling was that I just wanted to go home. And as I, again, raised my right hand to push through this door, I had a vision of that nurse and a very distinct, powerful vision of that nurse that had promised me she wasn't going to let me die. And in this vision... She was sitting in a hospital supply room on a little metal stool, leaning forward, head in her hands, sobbing uncontrollably. You know, she's in a little supply room with linens and pads and all the things that one would find in a, like a, almost a hospital closet. But through sobs, I heard her say, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die, and I lost her. And I thought, oh, man. But I also thought, you know... She's an RN. She's about my age. She's been through this before. She'll be okay. But then I felt her pain. I felt her sadness, her grief, her agonal suffering. And I remembered that's how I felt for two and a half years after my husband's suicide. I knew that pain all too well. So I, it's kind of funny now, but I put my right hand back at my side and I said, Ah, it's going to ruin this woman's day if I die. And within a millisecond, 
and I mean a millisecond, I was back in that body, back on that gurney with lots of excitement going on all around me. And uh, my first thought was, I thought we were going to talk about this. You know, I, I didn't know this was a split second thing. I thought we could, we could chat about this a little bit. And I was disappointed. Uh, I know we, it's hard for a lot of people. There are a lot of people in this world in love with life. I get that. I have never been that person. I have never felt like this is my home. And I just felt sad. Um, I, I felt like, wow, I, I was there and now I'm here. And that's, uh, that's been two years and I'm still adjusting to it. I'm still adjusting to having seen that. And yet, you know what? There were a lot of, lot of wonderful things that happened. I mean, I was taken by ambulance to a hospital. Lots of stuff happened. Um, the angels told me, I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, but the angels told me if I agreed to come back, I would come back heal, uh, healed and whole and healthy. And uh, it's pretty incredible. I was dead for more than 10 minutes. And then aside, when somebody dies from bleeding to death, and by the way, the surgeon, apparently the surgeon who did this very minor procedure nicked something and didn't catch it or thought he'd fixed it or whatever. So I did literally bleed to death. But you can't do CPR on somebody who bleeds to death because you just push out more blood. Right. So my point is, I literally had no blood flow, no oxygen to my brain for more than 10 minutes, which medically they would tell you is impossible, that I would be a vegetable right now. So uh, I came back and I felt different. I didn't even feel like me. The, the incredible agonal grief I'd felt over my husband was gone. I was able to forgive him. I was able to forgive myself. I was able to forgive all the people who had not been kind. And there were a lot of people. I mean, I had people asking me horrible questions after his suicide, immediately after his death. Did you, were you cheating on him? Is that, is that why you did this? Because, you know, he had to have a reason. And he said it was your fault. So what was it you did? So all, I forgave them. I forgave him. I forgave myself. I really felt liberated from the horror of his suicide. And my soul had been healed. You know, Psalm 23, he restoreth my soul. That was the real healing. That was the big deal. And <clears throat> ultimately, uh, at the hospital, they, they did a kajillion test. And they, they affirmed that my heart had stopped, that I had literally bled to death, and my heart had stopped. And they affirmed that I had lost, uh, they told me I lost more than 40% of my blood volume. I said, well, like how much? Like, you know, 48%, 59%. They said, well, you know what? After 40%, it doesn't matter because you're dead. <laughs> so they did affirm that. They affirmed I had a heart attack. They affirmed I had died. And oh, the other thing, they expected all kinds of damage. I mean, 59 years old, you bleed to death. I actually talked to an emergency room nurse. This was such a cool story. She had been involved in a case where they resuscitated, a, I think, a man in his mid-20s who had bled to death. Same thing, bled to death, and your heart stops the heart. It's a pump no blood, you're toast. And they had resuscitated this kid in his mid-20s and brought him back. And uh, he died 24 hours later because when the heart suffers that much damage, well, one, it's not just the heart, but it's the other organs as well. But I came back with no damage and they did lots and lots of tests. They were quite convinced, you know, there'd be kidney damage, heart damage, brain damage, something. And their tests affirmed again and again and again that I was in uh, very good health. And then ultimately, it was also affirmed um, 
that every vestige of the cancer was gone. Uh, they did multiple, mul multiple biopsies in multiple places, and they did not, they literally didn't find a single cell of cancer. And um, in fact, the, uh, the second oncologist, the first oncologist wouldn't even consider the fact that I'd been healed. I had to go find another oncologist, and she said, Rosemary, um, your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect. She said, I, I almost can't, she said, actually what she said is, I can't believe you ever had cancer. And yet the first oncologist, after an exam, had said it had advanced to a point where there was, uh, the flesh had become distorted. So this was a pretty dramatic thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's just that's part quite... of the story. There's more, but that's the Reader's Digest version. Uh huh. Um, wow. So, um, there, there's so you just said so much. You know, like one of the things that that, <laughs> that, that sort of popped into my head though, as you were talking about, you know, how they they, they healed your soul. Um, and sometimes, like I talk to a lot of um, uh, energy healers and stuff like that, and they'll say that you know the the um, physical illness is a manifestation of the sickness of our spirit. Um, do do you think something like that is possible that they healed your spirit and that resulted in the healing of your body? I think uh, I think that's part of it. I think you should not pray every night that you'll die in your sleep without expecting that, that that will get honored. I think it's dangerous to want to die. I think that's a devilish temptation. And I wonder if it was something dark that came back from the same darkness that took my husband out. I don't believe that we're supposed, we're supposed to live. We're supposed to embrace this life. We're not supposed to constantly be looking for the escape hatch. And if we are constantly looking for the escape hatch, we're missing the point of it all. You know, we, we may make a lot of mistakes, but I do believe there is the potential to benefit from every mistake we make. And I also believe, I, I know the angels were right, there, there isn't a wrong decision. I mean, if you're, if you're out doing nefarious activities or involved in things, I, I, I do think there are a lot of wrong decisions. But if you're looking at a vexing question and you're trying to make sure that everyone involved is blessed and trying to make sure you do right by everybody, if your motives are good, I think the decision, even if it might initially appear to have been a poor, a, a wrong decision, I, I think it'll wrap around, it'll come around to being a right decision. And I guess that's the big lesson I learned. I, I still struggle with decisions sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, if we're doing our best, if our motives are pure and good, I think I think we're going to keep walking in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what you felt, I mean, I, I have felt it too. I, I lost most of my family over a short period of time. And, 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 and by no choice of mine, but I would have this reoccurring thought, like I just want to leave here and, and, and be with my family again. You know, like, like I felt for, for a while feeling like I didn't belong. And, and I think that's, that's pretty, you know, I know at least I felt it, you know, and, you know, I didn't share it with many people. I shared it with one friend who had a similar thing and he's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. You know, I felt the same way. So, I, you know, I think that's sort of, you know, natural. Um, it, it sucks. You know, it's like, <laughs> like I know, I know for me, it, it's, it's taken a lot for it to go away. Um, and actually one of those things was an out-of-body experience 
um, that, that, that did change some of my perspective. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the angels. Was there any other communication between the you angels? and them? Yes, there was a lot, actually, because after I came back, I was in a hospital for four days on total bed rest. They were very concerned that I might bleed out again. And, you know, honestly, having been um, one of the things about being a suicide survivor, as we're known, in other words, we have lost somebody very dear to us to suicide, is that um, we are isolated. Nobody heals in isolation. We, we heal in community. We heal by being supported and loved. When we're too weak to, to stand up and face life on our own, that's when our friends are supposed, or family are supposed to step in and help us. But you get very, 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 very isolated as a suicide survivor. And um, one of the really lovely things about being in the hospital was they were going to make sure I wasn't going to die on their watch. And I was touched to tears by that. I mean, for two and a half years, it, it felt like, I mean, I did have friends, I did have family, but it felt like most people were like, she's toast. She's so screwed up. I mean, living out of her car, seriously. I, I think m most people had given up on me. In fact, I had a, a friend of a friend, financial advisor, wanted to set me on the right path, you know, sat me down, talked to me about goals and all that crap. And she said, Rosemary, where do you see yourself in two years and without missing a beat, oh my gosh, I know, without missing a beat, I said, oh, I'll be dead. And she said, why do you say such things? I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought it was an honest question. Human beings cannot survive this much pain. I was married to an attorney living in a beautiful house and had a lovely life. And now I can hardly face going to sleep and I can hardly face waking up. You ask me, where you, do you see me? Where do I see myself in two years? I will be dead. Human beings are not intended to go through this much torment. So being in the hospital, having these people, human beings, who were checking on me, checking my vitals, paying attention to everything, I was truly touched to my core that they were saying, your life is important to us and we don't want you to die and we're not going to let you go through this again. It was almost as if they were saying, not on our watch and that really, that was uh, that just such a tender, a tenderness to that. So about the angels, um, I had two friends that kind of tag teamed and made sure I was, I had somebody with me in the hospital, but there were times that both of them had to step away and get a bite to eat or something. And that's when the angels came into the hospital room. I mean, they didn't come in, they, they appeared and they, the angels would sing me songs and the songs were so beautiful. And the songs came with these heavenly chords, heavenly music. And I, it would make me cry. I've often used the analogy. It was like putting 100,000 amps through a 60-amp breaker box. Mm -hmm. It was just too much. And I would tell the angels, I'm good with houses. I'm good with pictures. I'm not good with melodies and lyrics. I'm not going to be able to remember this. And I want to. And the angels told me, they said, this is not for you to remember. This is for your healing. This is for your peace. This is for your delight. This is our thank you for agreeing to come back. This is for doing the right thing, even though it was a hard thing. And that music uh, was just so beautiful. And, and as to what they looked like, they had, I guess it would be best described as something resembling a human form. And yet they were full of light they were light beings they were just made of light and when these angels sang their songs were praising god 
their songs were praising love and God and and they got more sparkly and bright and, and it's like the whole room lit up when they sang. The light was so powerful and so enormous and so grand. And they, so they sang me these songs and I, I wept. I mean, I would just put my, I'm, you know, on flat on my back on total bed rest. I put my head in my hands and just cry. And I would say, but don't stop. <laughs> uh, they were beautiful. And my buddy Milton saw an angel. And this is a kind of a part two to this story that's especially dear to me. Milton had been taking care of me. <clears throat> Pardon me. He was a next door neighbor to the house that I shared with my husband. And Milton was the one who found my husband's body after, you know, after he put a gun in his mouth. And um, I'll spare your readers the details, but let's just say it's a very ugly picture. And so Milton was the one who found my husband's body. And then Milton, uh, my some people who loved me, wanted the best for me, decided that I had lost my mind and I needed to be in a psychiatric hospital. And Milton intervened and said, no, she will find a way to kill herself in a psychiatric hospital. That, that will be the thing that finishes her off. So Milton agreed to take care of me for uh, until I was able to stand on my own two feet. And he did. Uh, a mother could not have shown me any more care. In fact, during the period where I was living out of my car, I would come to the house and he would bring me fresh clothes and food so I could go back out and do whatever I wanted. He, he really, I, I cannot begin to describe what that man went through and what he did to keep me alive. And that was everybody's goal. Every human being's goal that, that loved me was just trying to get me through to the next day. So Milton was there when he saw my blood pressure go to nothing. And then after a bit, the nurse comes in, the doctor comes in, and they shoo him out of this little cubicle. And I, I just, you know, after I was back home from the hospital, I said, oh, Milton, you must have been terrified. You know, 29 months, you tried to keep me alive, and you gave this your all and your heart and your soul, and then I bleed to death and die. And now the, back, the very brief background, Milton had been a very proud atheist. He actually subscribed to a Amer uh, magazine called American Atheist, and he would offer to show it to me when it came in the mail. And says, really very intelligently written. I think you'll like it. Well, when he was standing, he told me later, you know, when we talked about this, we talked about it the day after I was back home from the hospital and I'm flopped out on my couch and M Milton is sitting across from me and his sister Mabel, who had also, she'd been the other one taking care of me in the hospital. They were sitting there and Milton, I said, oh, you must have been so frightened. Milton said, actually, I guess I had a few angels of my own, you know, when he was left alone in that, in that corridor. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes. He said, while you were in there and I was trying to think, what do I do now? She just died. I saw her. He said, a voice told him, she's with us. We only need her for a few minutes. She'll be right back. Don't be upset. And he said it was like somebody dra draped a warm blanket of love and peace around his shoulders. And all the fear and all the worry and all the what-ifs just evaporated. And he, he was so calmed and comforted by this that he went out into the lobby and got himself a soda. <laughs> and then uh, he came back and uh, he told me this was quite an event for a man who's an avowed atheist. And I said, so tell me, what exactly did this do to your belief system? And he said, 
almost with a degree of resignation, he said, it shattered every single thing I've ever believed. And I said, so do you believe in God now? And he said, well, there are angels, so I guess there must be a God. And I said, I guess you believe at the end it's not lights out. And he said, no. He said, I saw your blood pressure. You were gone more than 10 minutes. He said, nobody could come back from that. Nobody. And the fact that the cancer was gone, I mean, what column do you put that in as an atheist? There is no column. And, you know, the really cool, uh, another cool part of this is his sister, upon hearing the story, she became emotional. And she said, brother, I've been praying for you for 40 years that you you discover the love of God. And, and this has changed Milton. Milton is still, still very much in my life. And I tell people he was in the blast radius, <laughs> but he has, um, he texts me Bible verses. He sends me stories about angelic beings. I mean, this man was changed in the twinkling of an eye and it, it certainly changed me in many, many ways, but it changed Milton as well. And every now and then I get pretty sore and I say, God, why am I back on this earth? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. And then I think, you know, if I came back just so Milton would know what's real and what's true maybe that's a good enough reason you know maybe i, th I think <laughs> a lot I th I, I, your, your story is is epic uh, and, and and listening to it I'm, I'm thinking you know like like obviously like my next question would be like you know after going through that do you feel like you have some type of divine purpose in this world I don't know. I just bought a house that's a fixer-upper, and I, <laughs> if, if I have a divine purpose, I wish it'd be revealed, because right now, everything I own on this body aches a lot, but no, I, I, you know, it's funny, we still have to live on this earth, and I guess that's my point. We still have to get our oil changed, we still have to deal with the sniffles from time to time, we still have to have housing, and yeah, you know, that's another P.S. to this. After I came back from this, <laughs> this is pretty funny, uh, I had a lovely home in a lovely neighborhood, and I had, uh, I mean, I was a, I'm a writer, you know, I have a lot of, I, I do historical research, I, my books are all on historic architecture, so I had massive amounts of uh, ephemera and archival documents and on and on and on. Well, as soon as I got back from this, I started selling off every single thing I own. I sold off all my worldly possessions one by one, sold family furniture, heirlooms, been in the family for two, three generations, sold every bit of it. And, you know, as I sold it, it's really funny because uh, I've always kind of liked my stuff. You know, I have good stuff. And I would stand over like my mother's couch or my father's favorite chair and I'd ask God, I'd say, you know, this, this piece of furniture, this item, this plant stand, this chair, this whatever has been, has been such a blessing in my life. And God, please now bring me the person that, that will enjoy it, that, that it will bring a blessing to as it has blessed me. And invariably, uh, just the right person would call and say, oh, I've been searching for something just like this. So I sold off everything I own. And my friends were so funny. They said, um, we understand lightening the load, but you've kind of gone all kung fu on us here. <laughs> so after I sold off all my stuff, I sold my car. I had just bought a shiny new red Camry, um, and I sold that back to the dealership. And then I put my house on the market and sold it in two months. I, I mean, two hours. Listen to me. I sold the house uh, two hours. So let's sign one out in the front yard at three. 
had a buyer at five that same day. And then I, uh, I, I got my slightly used Prius C, which I bought to replace my shiny red car. And I drove a thousand miles due west. And I, until about, oh, five days ago, I was living in a rented bedroom because I don't need a lot of space. And in fact, in this house I bought, um, it's pretty, pretty modest and, uh, and it suits me. It was time to to move, you know, to someplace bigger. But one of the one of the challenges is I don't have any furniture, so we'll see how that works out. But I'm sure I'll find, you know, I, I know I'll find something. So this changed me in every way a human being can be changed. I mean, just every way. I I have no attachment to possessions, and that is a new me. And I, you you're quite. I so appreciate what you said that my story is epic. I really appreciate that. Uh, my purpose, I have written a book. I'm, I'm hoping to find a publisher and or just get it out into Kindle. Um, but I, I think um, I have a YouTube video that somebody did. It's had almost 50,000 views. And what I'm learning from that is people find encouragement. They find their faith renewed. It confirms there is life after death. I mean, I didn't just come back with a story. I left here with stage two cancer. I came back literally without a cell of cancer. And as I said, the doctors were just incredulous. They don't even know what column to put this under. They, they got nothing. So I guess my, my, my answer to your question is, I hope and pray that I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do and I'm spreading the message God, the way God wants it spread because I'm still a little fuzzy on my purpose. You know, maybe I came back to take care of my elderly dog and, and that's not insignificant. Maybe I came back to restore an old house that's, you know, needed somebody with my unique skill set. I don't know. I'm not sure. I wish I knew. And I, I believe as I continue just taking a step each day, walking forward, that it will become clearer. And I have, I have finished the manuscript. It took me, you know, two years. But I've completed a manuscript on this and certainly goes into a lot more detail. And, you know, maybe that manuscript will be a blessing. Maybe somebody will read it. And just feel encouraged and feel more hope. Because there's one thing that's happened as a consequence of that YouTube video, which is, I think its title is Rosemary's NDE. I've had an awful lot of people contact me who have similarly sad and tragic stories. And they liked, and, and this makes me happy. They say, you know, maybe if you found peace, maybe I can find peace too. So if maybe that's my purpose, you know, maybe it's not the great bestseller book that sells a million copies. Maybe it's just one person at a time that says, you know, I feel a little better now knowing that she had a healing. If it happened for her, it can happen for me. So I, I don't really know my purpose yet, but I, I keep, you know, just trying to walk in the right direction one step, one step at a time. Right. I, I would probably guess that your purpose would be to share your story because your story does a lot of things good for other people. Uh, I think like one, it makes a person less afraid of, of death. Um, and, you know, and also, you, you know, it, it has this story, it's a story of healing, you know, that um, our bodies can be healed and we're more than our bodies and everything is interconnected. And, also, I don't know. I mean, there's like really, there's so much, you know. And and also, I think maybe like the the suicide part of it too. Um, 
you know, there's, there's probably some message there of, of you going through that trauma that, you know, I mean, I, obviously I don't know what the message would be, but, you know, it, it's just a very touching story. Well, I appreciate that. And it, it, there are a lot of layers to it. <laughs> That's for sure. It's not your typical NDE. I, uh, I guess one of my dreams, and this, this is a pretty lofty dream, I would love to have the, the resources to create a, a resource, um, hmm, what's the word, uh, a thing for women who have just found out their husband killed himself where they can find help. I was questioned by the police after my husband's suicide about what was the nature of your last argument with him. And most women become the lead, most wives, most widows become the lead suspect in their husband's murder investigation when he's found dead. So it's not just, you know, so many widows have said to me, oh, I understand. I lost my beloved Bill last year. Sorry, you don't. Unless you got your but plop down in a chair and say, and, and asked by four cops, where exactly were you when this happened? Had you been arguing? Had you threatened to leave? Were there custody issues with the children? What was going on when he did this? Can somebody say that you were with them when he died? You know, so unless you can imagine what it's like to become the lead suspect in your husband's murder investigation, and that's what we're doing in the United States. And secondly, these women often have financial issues. They're left with children. They're isolated. They become lepers in society. I would love to find a way to create an advocacy group that says, okay, you know, it's, I don't know how old you are, but just as recent as the 60s and 70s, when a woman was a victim of rape, she got she got grilled by the cop. Well, what were you wearing? What were you doing out that late at night? She was tricked. She was not treated like a victim. She was treated like, well, you shouldn't have been doing that. And that's what we're doing today in our so-called enlightened society with suicide widows. We're drilling into them at the worst moment of their life. So yes, I would love to create an advocacy support group like like is available to women who are victims of other crimes. And instead of the cops being able to, you know, sit them down in a chair and grill them to say, okay, wait, we're going to have an advocate here for this line of questioning. We're going to have a thousand dollars instant money for any woman who's gone through this. So she can figure out how to feed her kids. We're going to make sure she doesn't end up living out of her car. We're going to end up making sure she's not addicted to benzodiazepines. We're going to do a lot of things to make sure she doesn't fall through the cracks. And if you want to get me started, probably not, but you know, getting me started on suicide prevention, women who have lost a spouse to suicide, depending on whose statistics you believe, are 14 to 48 times more likely to end their life. And that suicide, the Sisterhood of Suicide Survivors group I mentioned on Facebook, we've already lost three women who just could not take the social isolation, the horror of it all, and ended their life. So if you want to talk about suicide prevention, why don't we identify a known risk group, which are the women who survived this, and, and encircle them with love and resources and support and help and say, you know what? What he did was awful, and we are not going to lose you. We care and we are going to make sure you do not succumb to suicide because we understand you are a very high risk group. We're not doing that. We're making these women's lives a living hell or certainly mine was, and mine was a litigator. You know, he, we, we had, I guess you would say we were an upper tier of a socioeconomic level and I end up living out of my car 
I mean, it was very brief. It was, I guess it was a couple days, but it, and you know, the reason I'm not living, the reason I'm not dead is a friend of mine, another friend. I mean, Milton did everything he could. Another friend found out that I was, quote, the most comfortable in my car. And I was, and she said, we're not doing that. You're coming home with me because where could I go? I couldn't go back to the house where he did this. I couldn't get comfortable in anybody else's house. I was Uh screaming in the middle of the night. That's how I came to live in my car. It wasn't an issue of resources. It was the only place I felt a modicum of peace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's a whole bunch of stuff. Obviously, um, police are usually not the most, usually don't take the most sensitive approach to situations. Um, no, but there's got to be some adjustment in how this is managed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I understand yeah. when somebody dies, the a romantic partner is the number one, uh, the number one um, suspect. Right. right, but they shouldn't make you feel worse than you already do. Oh, that's it's real bad. And that the last, I mean, and by the way, as I mentioned, my husband's it was a text message he sent me. The last message was, "This is your fault." That is not uncommon. So many people. Um, I, I, well, I hate it when people say, did he leave a note? Did he leave a note? Did he leave a note? What they're really saying is what happened to you? Because I don't want that to ever happen to me. But many, many of these men, again, I, I know I keep using spousal terms, talking about husbands and all, but that's, that is my frame of reference. But I, I would guess probably half these people leave notes and a significant percentage, I couldn't even guess, leave notes blaming the survivor which is awful, just awful. There's no do-overs on that one. No, no. I once dated um, a girl, and uh, her boyfriend shot himself while he was on the phone with her. Oh, that's not, I've heard many stories like that, yes. Yeah. So it's... And I guess I'm just grateful my husband didn't do that, because it was moments, it was moments after... A last phone call where he initiated a terrible argument um, that yeah that this happened and I mean it, it I can't I cannot be I still I still struggle at times with memories but one of the things the angels told me they were very clear the angels used lots of words they told me that what I had been through was horrible and hellish and they said and 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 his last text and plus after his death I found out he'd had uh, multiple affairs. He had not been a faithful husband, and that that hurt so much. But what the angels told me, they said, uh, and again, this was after I came back from heaven. They said all of that has been encapsulated. That yes, it was a thing, and it hurt, and it was ugly, and it was awful, but it's been encapsul encapsulated, which is a great term for an architectural historian because when you're dealing with uh, potential potential contaminants in a home often it's better to encapsulate them rather than remove them because in their removal, you can stir up more of the uh, the fibers or the dust or whatever, and it becomes a bigger issue. But encapsulation wraps it up in a way that not one element or particle of the potential contaminant can be released into the environment. So, but that's what the angels told me was all of that story that whole mess had been encapsulated and it couldn't hurt me anymore. So yeah, it's, you know, they're not saying it never happened. They're saying it happened, but it can't cause you any more pain. It's not going to be a constant injection of venom into your soul. It's, it's been disabled. It's been disempowered, disemboweled and, and just um, 
all of its oomph has been taken away. And that, you know, even now, sometimes I like an anniversary date or I see somebody that reminds me of my husband or I, I hear his story. I, it's very easy for me to go back into that feeling sad. And I, I remember the angels say, no, 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 it's been encapsulated. And one of the things that the angels told me, because I had a million questions about him. Why did he do this? Why did he do this to me? Why did he leave that horrible note? And one of the things the angels, oh, and I, I know one of, the, one of the big deals for me is I felt, I felt spiritually responsible for my husband. He was an agnostic, and I was a fairly committed Christian. So I prayed for him faithfully. Actually, I prayed for him three times a day. And I felt when he did this thing, I felt I had failed him. And I felt so responsible, spiritually responsible. I felt like I had been assigned as a spiritual guardian. And here I had failed. I had failed God. I had failed him. There's no worse feeling to, than to think that you were given a specific task by God and you failed. You screwed up. And one of the things the angels told me when I said, well, I failed. I'm so sorry I failed. And they said, uh, you did not fail. You prayed for him. That was the extent of your duty. You can't change somebody else. All you can do is pray for them. And that's what you did. And I said, so what about his salvation? Where is he now? What's happening with him? How's he, how's he doing? And they said, none of your business. And I, I thought, well, that's rather curt for an angel. But <laughs> it was exactly what I needed. I had been in a ceaseless state of rumination why did he do this? How could he do this? I thought he loved me. I thought we were happy. Why did he do this? How could he do this? I thought we were happy. On and on and on I went. This took me out of that loop, and it put me in a new direction. And the new direction when I got in that loop was, that's not my business. That is between him and God. And, and boy, was that liberating. It was like having the shackles cut off. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah, those two messages of encapsulation and it's none of your business brought mm -hmm. me great freedom. Yeah, I, I, I could see that how it would, like, what the none of your business sort of cuts the cord and stops that tape from playing in your head. Yes. Over it and did. over again. It did. It really was like being set free. And I, I felt so free. One of the hard parts about coming back from heaven is I felt like I'd been newly minted. I felt like it wasn't just that I'd been brought back from the dead, I had been born again. I, I had been given a fresh slate, and I had been literally been born born again, and I I did not want any of the world's muck or mire or ugliness to, to sully me, and that has been a great challenge because we have to we have to live on this earth, and it is a very dense place to be, and it's hard to keep our thoughts on the things of heaven, when this earth is just uh, so thick and so challenging. So yeah, that, that has been my biggest challenge. I want to live in that place of hearing the angels, of knowing the answers before I even ask them, of, of just being in the company of too many angels to count. And I, I don't think we can. I don't, if we can, I don't know. I don't know how. So I have a question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Um, but I, I, this is just comes from me personally, too. Um, like, you know, the idea of God, do you think that there is an actual being that listens to human beings' prayers and actually cares about them? 
That's a pretty big question for a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big podcast. <laughs> like I said, I, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. I know it's a difficult one, but it is a difficult one. And part of what, part of what I I, I will remember, I would say to my dying day, but I'll remember for eternity is when I encountered this being. You know, shortly after my heart stopped, I'm floating away from my body, and and I say, and who are you? And and he she says, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I don't know the math. I mean, you have an original. My daughter has an original. You know, we all have an original. And is it is it like a prism that we're all facets of, of how the light reflects off this original? Mm-hmm. I don't know the math, but I know there is a God. And maybe that's just the word we use for the original. When I came back from this, this is almost funny. Uh, and this we might lose a few of your listeners on this one, but I referred... <laughs> I referred to this being as Big Rosemary because, you know, she's the original. I'm just the image. I'm just the picture. I'm just the picture frame of the original. I'm not the original. I'm just the image and likeness. So I called her Big Rosemary. And somebody said, you know, that's pretty offensive. And I said, I guess, but that's what it was to me. (laughs) I I think it's pretty cool, actually. (laughs) And, you know, like I say, I I, I do a lot of, you know, um, it, uh, you know, episodes on some stuff that's kind of out there. And one of the co- topics I I cover quite often is is um, the occult and high magic and stuff like that, or or what they call um, thirdery. And it is all practices on how to get you in touch with your higher self. Mm. You know, so so it, it kind of just it lines up with what you're saying like you're connecting with this thing is you know it's your higher self yeah i i guess I, I yes i think it is a higher self but um I well, mean, the higher you know, self is probably connected to the source yes and and you know that was one of the things is i tried to explain this in fact in writing my book when i was in that place of floating away from my body it was like i was one one billionth of a drop of salt water, a drop of water in the ocean being reunited with the ocean. That's what it felt like. I was just going back to what I'd always been. I, I was just, it was, you know, all I could think about is I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I can't wait. I'm coming home. I was just going back. And, you know, I've heard this analogy before, but I didn't understand it quite as well until I had this experience. This earth business, this is the dream stuff. When you die, it's when you wake up. I had the greatest mental acuity and clarity I have ever experienced. I got everything. I understood everything. It's like senses I didn't even know I had were awakened. This earth stuff is just, it is indeed the stuff of dreams. And when you die, you realize the the spiritual is the reality. The earth stuff, the human stuff, the mortal Mm -hmm. stuff, that's the dream. You know, and and not to get too far afield here, but you know, in the Bible it says uh, uh, God put Adam into a deep sleep and, you know, took his rib. There is nothing in the Bible that says Adam ever woke up again, which I've always found fascinating. I never really considered that. Yep. It's true. Um, like it's interesting. I, I've had an experience where um, I, I didn't die, but I had like a really long epileptic seizure for about 20 minutes and, and I remember what it was like being in that blackness, you know, and just kind of floating around. And I remember like thinking like when it happened, like the same as you, I was like, 
it wasn't like I didn't want to come back, but I was just from like being like, wow, this is really cool. You know, yeah. I, I kind of like this, you know, I'm not feeling any pain, you know, I'm not worried about anything. And, and, and it was like this very free type of feeling. Yes. And, um, and, and trying to explain that to people is, is difficult. Like people, a lot of people don't understand it unless they've experienced it. Um, yes. And I would love to find some more. I would love to connect with other people. And I do love to connect with other people who've had an NDE. One of the great challenges of this COVID stuff is we have all put us, everyone's been put back into isolation. And if you live alone, that boy, is that a challenge? You know, that's a big, ugly challenge. I, I was always quite the introvert and I guess I still am to a degree, but I love being with people. And now we're, you know, we're all, we're all on lockdown. And so it's, I realized my own NDE story has gotten a little bit uh, shoved off center court because um, I don't know, there's just, there's just a lot of sadness in the world right now. And it's something I struggle with. You know, I think about all the people that are alone. I struggle with being alone myself. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. And I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> I mean, it- like one of the best, I mean, one of the people I would suggest if you want to really want to reach out to somebody who totally would understand would be PMH Atwater. Oh yeah, I've connected with her. She's wonderful. Yeah, she she's such an awesome person. She is. Um, yeah, there was an NDE conference in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, in September 2019, and that was, in fact, it was just about a year after. Well, it was a year after my own NDE, and I met so many people. Oh my goodness, what a delight to find out that I'm not, I'm not the oddball I thought I was. And unfortunately, ever since September 2019, I look forward to September 2020. Because we're, you know, they do it once a year. It's mm-hmm. called the IONS Conference, an International Association for Near-Death Studies. But, of course, due to COVID, it all got canceled. And, and they did a virtual thing. But So, yeah, I, it is fun to find out all these funny little weird things are, um, are very common among those of us who've been to heaven and come back. Um, what's coming back? Do you find it easier to live like things are not as serious as they seem? Uh, In most cases, yes. I don't get quite so wrapped around the axle like I used to. And yet I still, um, you know, I I still have my struggles. I would love to say that I'm enlightened and, you know, I'm an enlightened master and it all just rolls off me like like water off a duck's back. But, you know, I still get... I was racing to get to church one day and this little old lady in front of me was doing about 25 in a 45 zone. And, you know, I'm ready to lean on my horn and give her a piece of my mind. And I think, oh, look at you. Look at you, good little Christian, rushing to church, ready to, you know, play bumper cars with an elderly woman in front of you. So, yeah, I, I know how to be better and I really wish I was being better, but I still struggle. I just, I see things differently. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still walking among us humans here. So That's <laughs> I it. just you're, wish you're, I could do you're, better. You're, st- you're still human. I mean, I, I think we all can do better. Um, but I, I think that type of experience, though, shakes something at your core um, that, that does change, you know, the way you look at things, I'm sure. It does. It does change how I look at things. I guess the most pronounced thing, even on my – even on a day that has its typical frustrations and upsets, I'll be rolling down the road and I'll see a, 
I'll see the trees on the crest of a hill just swaying back and forth in the wind. And I'll think, wow, is that, is that not just a foretaste of heaven? Is that not just a glimpse of the divine? So the things of nature stir me to tears frequently now. And that's new. I see the beauty in everything. I think about those angels singing and glorifying God. And I feel like when you look at the grass on a windy day and you see it all bend over under the wind at the same moment, you know, it's, it's a divine dance. And I guess that's one of the big things that changed. One of the funny things after I, you know, I got out of the hospital after four days and I'm pretty wobbly. I mean, they told me it takes some time for me to be sturdy and back on my feet again. And I'm walking into my house after being away for four days and I see all these mole traps in the backyard that I had set out. And I went around the yard and, and I kicked them all out because I thought, oh my God, they could hurt somebody. And, and by somebody, I mean a fuzzy little mole. <laughs> so the idea of hurting anything just became abhorrent to my soul. I couldn't possibly kill a little creature. And that, that was one of the many, many ways in which I changed. And, you know, releasing, letting go of my hold on all these possessions. Because, you know, what I realized was the happiest, the happiest and most profound joy I'd ever known in my 59 years happened in those few minutes I was in heaven. And in those few minutes that I was in heaven, I owned nothing. I had absolutely nothing that was mine. And I was profoundly happy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, letting go, not being so attached to the things can be very freeing. Oh, it is. In fact, with everything I stole, I just, I really felt like another weight had been snipped from my soul. It, it is incredibly liberating. Um, you might, you, you, when you talk about um, your neighbor, Milton, you yes. Know, when you were talking about him, I mean, and it, it's almost like like this guy was like an angel in a human body. He is. He truly is. Many people have said that, and he truly is. You know, one of the stories I shared, I only shared this at one, I don't know, maybe a couple lectures I gave. Um, when I was still in the thick of it, um, in six months after my husband's death, Milton and I moved into a home in well, actually, Portsmouth, Virginia. It was a rental house because I had been I had been staying at a farm with a dear friend, and I mean, six months out, it was time for me to be reunited with my dog. And Milton said that he would share the house with me to help with expenses. And at this time, I had lost a draconian amount of weight. I'd lost the ability to eat solid food due to the stress. So everyone was trying to get me to start eating again. And I mean, I was I was very thin. So Milton would make dinner every night and he would literally follow me around the house that we shared. You know, we had, we each had our own bedroom, our own bathroom. He would literally follow me around the house at like five at night and say, Rosemary, it's dinner time. He said, now I've made you your favorite thing, pasta and, you know, chicken. And I said, Milton, I can't eat. And he'd say, just one bite, just take one bite. He said, you've, you know, you've got to stop losing weight. And, and that was one of the things he did. And then I was still pretty stressed out. And, you know, that messes you up when you're not eating. If you're not mm -hmm. eating right and you're not getting enough, you know, liquid, your brain doesn't work. Yeah. And that's the last thing you need when you're already in deep trauma. But one night I got some bad news about a legal thing. Oh, so many legal messes. And I, um, I, I dropped my phone 
and I bolted out the front door of this shared house with Milton the angel. And I stood in the front yard and I screamed at the sky, you know, God, why do you hate me? Why do you hate me, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why do you keep torturing? Isn't there a day when I come off the rack? When are we done? And I went back in the house and Milton had been following me because he thought, you know, she's going to off herself now. And I went into his bathroom, which is kind of interesting. And I laid down in the bathtub. I mean, fully clothed. It was an you know, empty tub, but I laid down because I felt kind of cocoonish, you know. Mm-hmm. I felt safe in that tub. And Milton came in. I didn't want him to see me because I was sobbing. And I, you know, I didn't want anyone to see me in that state. Here I had been standing in a suburban neighborhood, by the way, where all these cute little 1960s brick ranchers sat cheek by jowl. And I'm standing at the night sky, staring at it, screaming like a crazy woman, which I was. So he sees me in the bathtub and he, he quietly walks out of the door. And I was relieved because I just wanted to sweep in that tub. It just seemed safe. He came back in the room, in, back to this dark bathroom. I mean, it's like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And he has a blanket. And he puts the blanket over me in the tub. And then he, he leaves the room again. And he comes back and he has a pillow. He has a little pillow. And he, puts, he raises my head. And now I'm curled up in a fetal position in a cerulean blue cast iron Kohler bathtub, you know. <laughs> and he puts a pillow under my head. And then he, he comes back a third time. And he has a pillow and a blanket. And he lays down on the floor beside me, a cold ceramic tile floor. And he says very softly, he goes, I guess we're sleeping in here tonight. That was a real Jesus move. That is exactly what I needed. He didn't say, get your, you know, get yourself out of that tub. He didn't say, that's it. I'm putting you in a psych ward. He didn't say, I'm going to bed. I've had it with you. He said, I guess we're sleeping in here tonight. And that is, um, that is inspired. I don't know many humans would know to do that. Milton is very good at listening to the angels and taking divine direction. So, yeah, I, I believe, and even Milton now, this is so cute. Milton thinks, he's told me this. He said, you know, I think before we came to earth, I agreed to help you through this. And I know he's right. Wow. Because that was going to be my next question. Was, um, you know, like you experienced what it is after you you die but i was going to ask you what what do you think happens before we were born i do believe in eternal life i am not a big fan of reincarnation i mean maybe we go to other planets i don't know but i i don't like the whole thing of reincarnation and the you know oh yeah we agreed to go through this only a sadist would agree yeah i want to be the queen victoria if we get to pick something i do not want you know i i would have to be a sadist to have picked this life I mean, really, when I was 14, my father abandoned the family. We were in poverty. My mom had a tough time. She had a nervous breakdown. Who picks that crap? You know, I want to be the kid that gets a Schwinn bike every Christmas. You know, I want the fun one. Who would pick this (laughs) crap? But, uh, and then have your husband blow out his brains at your house. Nobody would choose that. But yes, I do believe in eternal life. And I do believe that I have no doubt that Milton and I had some long talks and he, he came here to be my helper and, you know, coming back, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the point of the story is that we don't have to go through these traumas, um, alone that, you know, there's an old story of Fred Rogers, um, 
Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He said when he was a kid and bad stuff would happen, tornadoes or fires or something, that his mother, you know, we all tend to get mesmerized by the television or the radio or whatever. And Fred said his mother would say to him quietly when Fred would get very agitated by the tragedies of the world, his mother would say, Fred, look at the helpers. Look at the people that are helping. That's where you need to focus. And I guess that's the big takeaway from my book and my story is, you know, Milton is the hero of this story. Yeah. And, and, and so are you, definitely. I mean, you've, you've gotten through it and you're still getting through it. And in that process, you're going to help other people get through whatever it is they're going through. I hope so. That that would be the best. Early on, one of the big helpers in my life was a woman who was, I think she was in her teens when her older teenage sister um, killed herself in the adjoining bedroom. And my friend went into social work and uh, my friend helped me, helped me a lot. And she told me one of her daily prayers was, God, help me heal so that I can help others heal. And I put those words on a piece of paper and I taped them to every bathroom mirror of every house I ever occupied because that was my goal. That became a reason for living. You know, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, we can endure suffering if we know there's a reason behind it. Um, that was, my, that was my, um, my purpose. Help me heal so that I can help others heal. So yeah, that was a big deal for me. Yeah, I, I mean, that would definitely have to to be a big part of it. Um, back to the um, before you were born thing in Milton. Uh, one of the things, terms that, that has come up in some of my interviews is is the idea of a soul group. Have you ever heard of that? I have heard of soul groups, yes. And, and do you think like that's what, what, what it is? Like, you, you know, you, Milton, and maybe some other people are part of a a soul group that, that, you know, are here to help each other get through this? I do believe in that. I believe we bond to each other. And I, I don't have any doubt about that. One of the, <laughs> one of the really dear things about Milton, in the early days, I suffered intense nightmares, terrible, terrible, intense nightmares. And the other thing I did, <laughs> I did this thing, I guess it's night eating. I don't know what you call it, but I would sleepwalk through the house and I would go to the kitchen and I would get Vienna fingers. Something about, it was the only thing I would eat for a while was Vienna fingers. Who doesn't love Vienna fingers, right? <laughs> but in doing so, two, three in the morning, I would walk right past his room where he's sound dead asleep. And I'd walk into the kitchen. And before I could even turn around and come back, he'd be standing in the hallway and he'd say, are you okay? And, you know, sometimes I would remember it most of the time not. And I say, how, how is it you can be sound asleep at two in the morning? And you hear me walking quietly down the carpeted hallway past your closed bedroom door, and you can hear me. And he said, and I will always remember this, he said, I don't know. It's like a mother with her infant child that when the baby rolls over in the crib, the mother wakes up. And I thought, you know, he did agree to something. <laughs> 60-something-year-old man does not wake up when a woman tiptoes down the hallway to go get some Vienna fingers. But invariably, any night that I got up and walked down that hallway, he would get up and say, are you okay? That's great. 
It is. It's and my point is, it's almost like a motherly love. He yeah, had no, for it's, me. A, it's a definite connection. Yes. Uh, something that can't be explained. He definitely had a, a sense of what to do, and, and like like beyond really what any like the whole bathtub story just blows my mind. Like how would somebody even know that's what you needed? Yeah, and especially an old guy. You know, it's hard enough to get down on the tile floor, but to sweep there, I mean, that was quite. And you know, the result of that was after about five or 10 minutes, I couldn't bear the thought of this guy trying to sweep on a cold tile floor. And so I, I got up out of the tub and I said, let's just, you know, let's go get in our own beds and call it a night. Um, but yeah, he, and that's one example of many. I actually have quotes on my wall in my bedroom of things he has said to me that have changed my life. And I often say to him, where do you get this stuff? And he says, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I, I just like to think that he's very good at listening to the angels. Wow. Um, so I'm going to get ready to wrap this up. Did I, is there any questions that I di- should have asked that I didn't? <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I used to be a reporter a million and a half years ago and that was, I always said, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I guess the biggest thing was that this uh, Milton's actually in IT. He does computer stuff. And he says, and I love this, he said, it's like you were rebooted by the creator. And I really believe that, I believe I could have died, but I think I was supposed to come back. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think I, I was given a choice. I think it was a legitimate choice. And I think that thing of seeing the nurse at the door was God's way of saying, I'm going to help you make this decision. This is a hard one, but I will help you. Here's, you know, here's, here's a little inspiration to go down the right path. And, you know, something I, I did not mention, there's a lot of little bunny trails on this story, but at the time of my death, I had, um, I've, I've always been in house stuff. I've done a lot of uh, construction stuff and I used to do car repair. I mean, I've had quite a wild life, but so I had a busted knee, a busted up shoulder, uh, my hearing, I'd been in radio, my hearing was not great, some high-frequency hearing loss, arthritis. I had arthritis in my wrist real bad, maybe from being a writer. But when I came back, all that was gone. All of it was gone. And and I, I it never came back. So I really did get the slate wiped clean. And And the reason I mention that is we really are spiritual beings. The reality is the spiritual side of things. And when, when we're trying to heal stuff by saying, oh, if I pray enough, if I do this enough, if I take enough vitamins or minerals or do this thing or that thing, but the real thing is the spiritual. And I had always had a theory that the decision to, you know, in these near-death cases, the decision to stay or to go, you know, the decision to go on to heaven or to come back to earth is made on a spiritual level. And then the body has to say, oh, oh, oh okay, that's what we're, we're coming back. Okay, we're coming back whole. Okay, got it. And I really think my experience bore that out. I mean, we all know 10 minutes with no blood flow to the brain, you're toast. Three minutes, you're toast. Mm -hmm. And not only did I come back, I came back with my hearing healed, all these funny little problems healed, the cancer gone. I mean, that's, that really tells us how insubstantial this human picture is and how incredibly substantial the spiritual is. 
And I guess if I wanted if I wanted to condense it to a one paragraph message, that would be it. One, God is real. Love is the biggest power on earth. And and if you want, if you're looking for healing, look to the spiritual realm because the material is where the it's the smoke and mirrors is the material. Yeah. The spiritual is the real deal. Yeah, I, I like the saying that we're we're spiritual beings having a human experience. But we get too tangled up in that human experience. We get too uh, too carried downstream, thinking the human experience is the end all. It's not. Yeah. It's just. It's so insubstantial. I mean, and, and 10 minutes dead's pretty cool, but, you know, I've heard stories of people being dead for hours. <laughs> so it, it's just amazing how unimportant the human picture is when compared to the spiritual. I liken it to, like, the because when I went, when I came back from this, I tried to go back to the oncologist who'd done the original stuff and had me set up for chemo and radiation. When I told him I was going to decline chemo and radiation, he was not a happy man. Um, he thought I was um, being very, very foolish and told me so. And I realized he's operating in this little cardboard box and, and that we have to get out of the box. And it's a box of medical, physical, material thinking. But we have to get out of that box and we have to look at the big picture and see that we're in a box and see that the big picture is spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where healing happens. And we've gotten so, so tangled up in, in Western medicine that we've forgotten healing's been happening for thousands of years. And I'm not saying that we should discount, you know, the benefits of diphtheria shots and scarlet fever and the other things we've eradicated. But I don't know. There are many paths to healing, I guess, is my point. Absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how could I possibly get my hands of some of that white mist? <laughs> I, can cer- I, can, I can certainly use some of that stuff. <laughs> I know. I know. White light. Yeah, I know. And, and the, fact that, the fact that it was light, isn't that an interesting – I'd love to talk to a physicist one day that those itty-bitty bits of, of particles that I was being showered with were healing light. Isn't that cool? That is cool. It's very cool. It's amazing. Now, thank you for coming on today. You're very welcome. And um, where can my listeners find you? Oh, that's a good question. If you go to the YouTube, my YouTube, well, it's not mine. Somebody recorded it, but it's Rosemary's NDE. And I do have a website. My, my genre, uh, I write a lot about the old Sears kit homes offered by Sears and Roebuck in the early 1900s. Okay, so so my that website, was you. I was wondering yeah, Rosemary <laughs> if I had Thornton. the right person. <laughs> yeah, Rosemary Thornton, that's me. Um, my website is www.searshomes.org. That is my website. Wow, one and, of my you know, friends that, lives in one of those homes. Oh, they're very popular. And, and that's... That was a big deal. I mean, I, I, had, I had a significant amount of um, success being the person who, who did the Sears house gig. But you know what's funny is after, <laughs> after I came back from heaven, it's my SearsHomes.org website became a, I don't know, some kind of spiritual thing. It was, it's all like, <laughs> let me tell you what I saw today. I saw the leaves blowing in the wind today. They were so beautiful. And let me tell you what I saw in heaven. I, so, yes, it's, it's kind of moved uh, far afield from the architectural history uh, gig. <laughs> but there, my contact information is there, too. So, okay, you know what? My... One, of the, 
one of the fascinating things. I've had several people contact me through the website that say, I had an NDE and I was also taken to the white room. So this, you know, it's not the Hollywood thing, but apparently this white room is not uncommon. It's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to uh, find out one day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not very too pleasant. Soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I have your information here for the YouTube video, and I'll post that in the notes to this episode. And I'll also post the uh, link to your other site as well for the uh, Sears Homes. <laughs> That'd be great. That would be wonderful. That's great. Well, thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise. To support the costs of producing this podcast, click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.